I always felt like there was this unique, rebellious nature about horror film directors because they were over and over again being told, you can't show that, you can't do that, people don't want to see that. So they're like, oh, really? You don't think they want to see that? Well, watch this. I'm Eli Roth, and this is my Shudder original series, History of Horror Uncut. Each episode is a candid conversation with a master of the genre, drawn from raw and unfiltered interviews conducted for my AMC TV series, Eli Roth's History of Horror. These are deep dives into the dark power and wicked fun of frightening movies, the craft that goes into making them, and the ways that horror reflects the anxieties of our times. They're also probing, insightful, and often funny conversations that open up doors into the minds of horror's star creators. The terror begins right after this. If you're listening to this podcast, you've seen something Greg Nicotero has worked on. As a founder of K&B Effects Group, Greg has created special makeup effects for many of the great filmmakers of our time, inside and outside of the horror genre. Greg has worked on genre classics like Day of the Dead, Evil Dead 2, and Scream, landmark TV series including Breaking Bad and Watchmen, and he's unleashed rivers of blood for Quentin Tarantino. As an executive producer and frequent director of The Walking Dead and Fear the Walking Dead, Greg has brought new levels of zombie violence to the screen. He's also the creative force behind Shudder's Creepshow, which lets him indulge his lifelong love for supernatural scares. Greg took time from his busy schedule to talk to History of Horror showrunner Kurt Sienga about how a family connection to George Romero changed his life, the beauty of practical effects, his favorite recent horror films, and how his revival of Creepshow is the realization of a childhood prophecy. So you're originally thinking about medicine. Yeah, my... uh... My dad's a physician, and when I was growing up in Pittsburgh, I always loved movies. My whole family loved movies. I mean, my parents took us to see Planet of the Apes in the theater and Jaws in the theater. We went to the movies all the time. So I, I developed a passion for special effects and for movies and James Bond and you know all the hammer horror stuff. But I always looked at it as it was a hobby, and my dad was a doctor and they were kind of like, well, you got the brains of the family and you're going to take over your dad's practice and you're going to follow in his footsteps. And I was like, okay. I mean, it made sense to me. I didn't, I didn't argue with it. I didn't think it was a bad idea until I hooked up with George Romero and Tom Savini. And I still didn't think it was a bad idea, but all of a sudden I went, wait a second, you can actually... You can actually get a job where you get to make monsters and build miniatures and work in the movie business. But for me, like Tom Savini, I didn't have to move to Hollywood to do it. I was able to do it in Pittsburgh. So it was, you know, sort of a perfect storm. Everything kind of lined up. 
Did your dad ever go to the OR or take you to the OR? Did you ever see any surgery? I spent some time at hospitals. Um, ironically, about three weeks before I was officially hired on Day of the Dead, I was interning at a different hospital every day in Pittsburgh. Because one of the things is, you know, when you're looking to get into college and you want your entrance exam application to be as filled out as possible. So I would go every day. One day I worked with a cardiologist and then the next day I would work with a surgeon and the next day. So every day I would go and I would sort of shadow a doctor. And I'll never forget when I went with the surgeon and I scrubbed up, put the gown and the gloves on and I just stood behind him. And the first surgery that I ever watched, uh, there was a guy who had a tumor under his arm and they had him, he was asleep and the scalpel went whoosh and the skin opened like that. And then they brought a little like soldering gun and they and they burned the, the blood vessels closed. And the smell, I'll never forget the smell of just like that burning flesh. And then I saw the tumor and it looked like when you take the skin off of a baseball, like it was all rubber bands all round up or a golf ball or whatever with blood vessels going through it. I remember like it was yesterday. And I think because of my fascination with monsters and special effects, and at that time, that was in 1984. So the gore wave of horror from Dawn of the Dead and Friday the 13th and all those movies had already gone by. So I think I was already sort of conditioned that the blood was blood and, you know, it didn't bother me. But it was really fascinating for me. And I'm still always intrigued by the anatomy uh, behind everything. And, you know, we did a movie years ago called Gross Anatomy, which was actually a Disney film about medical school students. And we got the job because I had studied pre-med. So I did Day of the Dead in Pittsburgh with Tom and with George. And then I worked on Tales from the Dark Side and I moved to LA. And I freelanced a little bit. But when k and started in 1988, our big, real big sort of first break was this movie called Gross Anatomy. Deborah Hill produced it. And Deborah Hill got a recommendation from George Romero. And George said, yeah, this kid, Greg, you know, he's pre-med and he's smart and he's studied it all. Like he was in college and he studied biology and anatomy and art. So that's how we got that job. And ironically, that job led to Dances with Wolves. So within two years of K&B's inception, we were working on sort of big Hollywood movies, not at that time and sometimes sort of the horror genre, which always kind of seems to sit over here where other things sit over here. You know, obviously there are different people with different effects and people who specialize more in creature effects. It's safe to say your effects or the ones that you became first known for were more based in realism. Like Special effects makeup is, it really hit its stride in the mid to late 70s. You know, you had Planet of the Apes and The Exorcist and things like that. I really don't think it was until Dawn of the Dead that it sort of exploded, no pun intended. Because when you got to the late 70s with Alien and then the early 80s, in the early 80s, it was all makeup effects. Every movie, the the marquee, like Tom Savini or Rick Baker or Stan Winston, their name was sort of like more of a draw for me than the actors. Because I knew that if those guys were involved, I was going to see something fantastic. I was going to see something exciting and amazing. And you know, if you look at those films, those films really were sold on the merit of the special effects. So by 1982, 83, with The Thing and American World in London and The Howling and all those movies and all those makeup effects guys who were really just stretching the boundaries of everything that you could do, 
that was absolutely the most exciting time for makeup effects. And that's right at the moment when I found my way into the industry. I think if I would have waited another year or two, or even a year or two earlier, I don't know if, if things would have lined up as well as they did. I think I hit it right at the right time. I moved to LA in 85. Howard Bob and I started k and in 88. And at that point, you know, the big makeup effects craze was a little bit on the sort of downhill slide. And then, of course, you get into the 90s and it was visual effects with the Abyss and Jurassic Park. Visual effects became sort of the new toy in the, in the sandbox. And that didn't necessarily mean that makeup effects were outdated because to be honest there were a lot of films that were being greenlit to go into production that had a lot of effects in them because people started realizing that they could do more with digital effects as well as makeup effects so there was a big marriage so i always felt like in the mid 90s between like men in black and spawn and even jurassic park with the animatronic dinosaurs there was sort of like this blending this melding of it all that that continued to perpetuate special effects makeup when you get a job, how do you think through, what's your process for thinking through effects? I always say that the first meeting on any movie is the best and the most exciting because it's, there's a completely clean slate. You read the script, you start coming up with ideas and thoughts, and then you sit with the director and you brainstorm. What if we did this? What if we did that? A lot of times the director will have very specific ideas. And in other instances, the director and the effects artist will sort of riff on ideas and take things into a different direction. I always equate it to like being in a comic book shop. You find a comic book and you're like, oh, this is a good one. And then you keep going through the bin and then you find another one and then you find another one. It's like this really exciting sense of discovery uh, in the early stages of making movies. You're not really worried about the budget. You're not worried about the schedule. You're not worried about anything. You're just sitting down to have creative conversations. And it's always the most fun because then ultimately whatever comes out of those meetings is in some instances compromised because of either budget or time. But I love it when everything's on the table. You know, when you sit down with Sam Raimi or Robert Rodriguez or Quentin Tarantino and you just kind of talk about what the intent of the scene is. You can never really ask specifics. Because a lot of times you'll be prepping a year, six months before the scene's going to shoot. So if you ask the director, well, where's the camera going to be? They don't know where the camera's going to be yet. In most instances, you know, film is a very organic and fluid medium. And in a lot of instances, every shot is storyboarded. And it's like, the camera goes here and we do this. But, you know, so many directors are different in the way that they work. And... The one thing that I learned having directed on The Walking Dead was the ability to design gags and makeup effects sequences to be more fluid, probably more fluid than I would have designed them if I hadn't directed. Because you never know, you know, the sun's coming up, the sun might be here, you might have rain, you might have, you know, one of the actors might say, why would I stand there? I want to stand over here. Things can change and there are valid reasons why you need to be organic as a makeup effects artist. So I always felt that after I had directed my first episode of The Walking Dead, I went on and I worked on Django Unchained with Quentin. And I really felt like I was a different effects person. And I feel like every job that I've done with Quentin, he never gives specifics about what the effect is. It's written in the script and his script is gospel and you interpret it and how you interpret it and how you present it to him is how it's going to be filmed. And he was very intrigued by that. I remember him wanting to talk a lot about like, what was it like to direct and tell me what the experience was like. He really wanted to know what my experience 
was like as a director. Ironically, when I started building things for his movies, I would think more about how I would shoot it. You know, oh, well, maybe if I put the camera here, then it would allow me to build this a specific way. And then I would build it, shoot tests, cut footage together. And on most of the instances, when I would show the footage to him, that's how we would shoot it. Like, it was a really unique, and even up to Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, you know, that's sort of the way that we the way that we work together. And I love that spirit of collaboration where you're treated like an integral part of it. So that's my process. My process is really to put myself in the director's mindset as best I can and present to them what I feel satisfies the vision of the script and what their vision is. Did you work in that whole Fulci-esque bloodbath at the end of Once Upon a Time? I did. We designed all of it. You know, what's funny about Once Upon a Time in Hollywood is you think about the backdrop of the movie. And I remember when Quentin was writing it, and I was really concerned that we were going to have to recreate aspects of the Manson murders, which I was didn't know how I felt about that. You know, there's it's one thing when it's fantasy. It's another thing when it's reality. I remember being a kid and looking at the Helter Skelter book and just being disturbed by the outlines of the people in the carpet with the blood stained into the carpet disturbed me. So when I read the script, I realized that that was Quentin's take on that time in, in Hollywood, very much like Inglorious Bastards. So there wasn't a ton of prosthetics work, but there was just enough. And again, it was that same situation where, you know, when Brad's fighting back and he's got the can of dog food and he's smashing her in the face with the can, of, you know, and then he grabs her by the back of the hair and smashes her head into the mantle and into the table and into here and all this stuff. It was written. Quentin never said, these are the elements that I need. I built the elements that I knew he would need based on what the script said. And I have a funny video of us with those heads running around the shop, bashing them into tables and bashing them into everything. And we, we built the heads so that there was a hollow chamber inside to put blood in and you'd score the silicone. So every time you would hit it, um, the face would collapse and then blood would come out. And, you know, I needed it to look real and I wanted it to look real. And we had the, uh, an animatronic puppet for the dog. So the dog clamp clamping on the face, a lot of that kind of stuff. But, you know, it's always funny because with Quentin's movies, we really don't talk about the makeup effects stuff a lot because, you know, like Grindhouse, the whole car crash sequence with the bodies being torn apart when Kurt Russell crashes the two cars together. I was so proud of that sequence and so blown away by how it all came together. And again, that was a situation where we sat in the car with four doubles and took pictures of all the potential angles. And then where we mocked up, okay, well, there will be a shot would be from here. And, you know, the one angle with one of the actresses in the back seat she sees a car coming closes her eyes and tilts her head back and then the wheel rips her face off so when we did the test we did a sculpture with a skull face and then we put the actress's face on it and the first time we did it you know the way the wheel would be spinning it would be spinning clockwise so the wheel would hit the face and it would pull the head forward and we did the first test and i'm like ah, it's not it's not as good like you want the face to go back. So when the chin goes up, you see the face rip up and then the head comes forward. And I remember talking to John McLeod and uh, this special effects artist and Jeff Dashnell, the stunt coordinator, and just saying, I know, and you know that the wheel would turn the other way, but no one else will know that. I said, what we want to do is take the liberties to make the shot the best shot that it can be. 
And that is switching the direction of the wheel so that when the wheel hits her face, it hits her chin. And when her face comes back and the wheel clears, then the, the head will fall forward again. How real does real have to be, when, particularly when you're talking about uh, blood effects, gore effects? Is a certain stylization necessary to keep people on board with the movie? Is it possible to lose them if there's like too, too much or too realistic? Blood gags in and amongst themselves are challenging because you can see a lot of blood and think it's a little bit of blood. And you can see a little bit of blood and think it's a lot of blood. You know, we've done thousands of slit throats in every movie that we've ever done. And we have conversations Literally, I would be sitting at lunch at a restaurant talking to a director about like, okay, so when we cut the guy's throat, is it on the front or is it on the side? Because do we want a little carotid artery, arterial spray, or does it just dribble out? And the people at the table next door are always mortified by our conversations. But we spend a lot of time thinking about that aspect of it. And there's something very dramatic about seeing blood spray out of someone's neck in a special effect. But then I think back to other times, there's a great gag that Dick Smith did in a movie called Marathon Man, where there's a man chasing Laurence Olivier down the street and he's like pointing at him and Laurence Olivier triggers this knife that comes out of his sleeve and slits the guy's throat. And there's just this hint of blood coming out and it's the look on the guy's face and then he pushes his head down into this trash can. That was so haunting to me. And I think so much of what it is about what I do is either how the actor reacts or the actor that it's happening to. Because, you know, you look at every werewolf transformation, you look at the howling and you see Dee Wallace cowering in the corner and she's in the corner. And then the reaction to Rob Bottin's effect, you know, like an alien when the chest burster comes out, you know, the outtakes of that scene to me are unbelievable because you would never believe that that scene would have come from those outtakes. If you ever watch the DVD or if you ever watch the special features on iTunes, they have the outtakes. And there's literally a tube with a geyser, almost like a half inch thick geyser of blood that shoots out and hits Veronica Cartwright almost right in the face. And it's so gory and bloody that she falls back and hits the ground. And they kept pumping the blood. So you look at that and then you look at the final cut sequence and part of what made that sequence amazing was the reactions of all the actors. So you have a great blood spray, but you also have that aspect of it. So for me, like blood gags and gore and those kinds of aspects of special effects makeup, you can take them and you can plus them by a thousand by having a great reaction to whatever it is that you're doing. Probably wouldn't have been the same if it had been a digital effect with a bunch of people in a room told to react to. And now the alien's bursting out of the chest. I don't even know. Filmmaking is, is an art form, just like production design, just like cinematography, just like special effects makeup. Those art forms allow things to be at times imprecise. And there are often times when you find magic out of that imperfection that you didn't expect. You know, I don't believe that in the digital world, there aren't really mistakes because the you program the computer to do it and the computer does it and that's it. But there's been so many times when there's happy accidents. You know, I, I worked on Land of the Dead with George Romero and there was a scene where a zombie bites a woman in the cheek and we had a gelatin prosthetic, blood tubes, and then there was a plug that smoothed out the bite. 
So in action, the zombie comes up, grabs the girl, bites her cheek, and she's struggling, and she's whipping her arms around, and then uh, she, he, the zombie rips the chunk of meat off, and the blood sprays out. And George yells, cut, love it. And he looks over at me, and I was I was a little disappointed. And he's like, what's up? And I said, ah, her arm blocked it. Like, I felt like we didn't see the actual skin tearing. And he said, well, listen, this is the way I look at it. If somebody was biting your face off, you would flow your arms, right? And I said, yeah. And he said, it's real. That's what would really happen. We don't need to worry about seeing the muscle and the tendons and the skin tearing. It would be great, but that's not what it's about. What it's about is this horrific moment where this woman is fighting for her life. And I always loved that story. And I always remembered that there was a in my mind, a slight imperfection that he loved. And he felt that that's what it was about. So I feel like ever since, probably in the last 10 years, practical makeup effects have made uh, a very unique resurgence. And I think a lot of it is because of The Walking Dead, because now you see it on television. You know, Even when we did Land of the Dead in 2004, there were concerns about how far we could go with the gore because of the ratings. And then we turn around and we do it on AMC and it's just as gory. And nobody said anything. Nobody said, oh, you can't do that on TV. They didn't say it. That was unbelievable to me. I remember the arguments that we had with the ratings board on every movie that we did between 1989 and probably 2002, because they were regulating what you could show in the theater and when you, what you couldn't show. And directors would would shoot excessively gory takes that they knew they wouldn't use so that sometimes they would put it into the cut. In other instances, things that you had spent weeks and weeks shooting and building and designing and collaborating and life cast and makeup application. And then you see it on screen and it's on screen for 12 frames. They would cut frames out. In my opinion, in the last 10 years with the advent of so much great fantasy television, I feel like special effects makeup and prosthetics and creature effects has found a really unique place in people's sort of affections again, you know, with Walking Dead and Game of Thrones and American Horror Story, all these shows now that embrace practical effects. And a lot of reason they embrace them is because there's a, there's a nostalgic factor to them and they're real. Like you're not holding up a green ball and going, Hey, okay, here's the alien. Okay. Here's this. It adds overall to the quality of the project. And I'm really proud to have been a big part of that because of Walking Dead. Misery, of course, was released when the MPAA was certainly had, had the movie industry in thrall. And yet, um, you know, you did your effects work and that is particularly memorable. Tell me a little bit about that. Well, you know, the interesting thing about Misery is, is that there's not a lot of blood. In the book, Annie Wilkes cuts his foot off with an axe. I think even in the even on the cover, one of the hardcover illustrations had her holding an axe. The first meeting with Rob Reiner and Steve Nicolaides, who was the producer, we went down to Castle Rock, we we're sitting there, and he said, listen, I can't use an axe. We can't cut his foot off. I just, I don't think the character is redeemable in any fashion. Once that foot is chopped off, the audience is gone. It really wasn't so much even about the execution of it. He just, Rob just felt that that wasn't what was appropriate for the character and the movie. 
So he said, we're, we're going to do this thing called hobbling. And so what we're going to do is we're going to put a block of wood and then we're going to use a sledgehammer. So what we ended up designing, multiple things in that movie, we did the stages of Jimmy Kahn's broken and bruised legs from the car crash. So when she rolls the she rolls the bed covers back and you see like the purple bruises and the swollen toes and all that stuff. So we built those prosthetics. And then, of course, the moment where she hobbles him. And the interesting thing about that, just like in Reservoir, I, I compare this movie a lot to Reservoir Dogs because people think they saw something that they didn't see. And it's really a, a masterful uh, use of direction by Rob. And Quentin did the same thing because the way that we designed that scene, we made these fake legs out of gelatin with a PVC pipe in them with hinges in the ankle and we had cable on them so that we could pull the cable when she uh, when she swings the sledgehammer and foam inside there and we cut two holes in the bed so at lunch the whole crew broke for lunch and we put Jimmy's legs through the holes in the bed and then we attached the fake legs with like literally like webbing that went around his knees so that the legs and then we, we dressed the bandages and we put everything back together. And then the crew comes back for lunch. And I remember Rob coming up and going, what did you, what have you guys been doing? Like, you're supposed to get this already. We went to lunch and we're back. I'm like, well, those are the fake legs. Like he, he didn't know, which was very exciting. But you know, if you watch the way that that scene is edited together, you see in the wide shot, she hefts up the sledgehammer. So, you know, it's a real sledgehammer. We never used a rubber sledgehammer. It's always real. She, she lifted the sledgehammer up. So you can see it took some effort. And then there's that close-up of her saying, God, I love you. And then she swings, and they cut back to the wide. There's no insert close-up of the ankle breaking. He cut wide, and she swings down, and she makes contact, and the sound effect, and then you cut to him screaming. You never even see the second ankle breaking. You only see, there's literally one shot in the movie. I'll never forget going to the cast crew screening, I took a girl that I was dating with me at the time and she like loved horror movies. Like she would scream and Rob Reiner was sitting like right in front of us. And I'm like, please don't scream. I, I was like, I don't know why I was like worried. I'm like, don't scream. Cause I don't want to be embarrassed. Cause you know, the director's sitting right there. So the sledgehammer comes up and she swings and my friend screams at the top of her lungs and the movie's over and we walk out into the lobby and Rob was standing there and he said, I just, Greg, I just want to say thanks. He said, I knew he had something special when we did the first screening of the movie. When she raises the sledgehammer, I could feel the oxygen disappear from the movie theater because everybody at the exact same time went and sucked all the oxygen out. And then once Kathy swings down and breaks the leg, that was like the most dramatic release of all of that anticipation of that moment. So it was a really, really fun experience. And then at the end, of course, when he breaks free and he fights her, we did three different expression heads of Kathy Bates. One with the eyes closed and the mouth open that he's shoving the burning manuscript down the throat. Another one that hits the typewriter when he grabs her and trips her and she falls and hits a typewriter. And then there was a third head that had the eyes closed. It was like in a pained expression. So Kathy Bates came up to the shop. That was like one of her first jobs. And the greatest thing is she walked in and she started quoting Texas Chainsaw Massacre Part 2. She's like, lick my plate, you dog dick. And we're like, 
this is the coolest thing ever. This girl's quoting Toby Hooper movies. But it was a, it was a really, really fun, that was a really fun time uh, working on, on all those movies because we were fortunate enough to, because of Dances with Wolves and our relationship with like Kevin Costner and then with Rob Reiner and Castle Rock, we were really fortunate enough to not get pigeonholed into just doing horror stuff. So, you know, we did City Slickers and then we did Misery and then we were doing a lot of different kinds of things, which really allowed us the opportunity for some versatility. Uh, and we worked a lot, which was always good. Let's talk about the people under the stairs. Oh, yeah. What was your job in that film? Well, that was my first film with Wes Craven. And that came out of me working on City Slickers. There was a woman named Tony Ellis who worked on City Slickers, and she introduced me to Stuart Besser, who was a line producer on, on People Under the Stairs. And I was really excited because, for me, Nightmare on Elm Street was, in my opinion, and still is, like one of the top 10 best horror movies, most original horror movies I had ever seen. I love that movie. So to have an opportunity to work with Wes was really, really exciting to me. So we ended up going down, having a couple meetings, talking about the script, talking about the characters. It's, it's so strange because Wes was such a kind-hearted, nice guy. Like he was so sweet that you would never imagine that these horrible things would come out of this mild-mannered fella. So we ended up, it was myself, Mark Matry, Earl Ellis, there was a couple of us that designed all these makeups. And basically, the characters were, were all sort of held captive in the basement of this house. And this house was sort of like, a, uh, like an H.H. H. Holmes kind of, kind of place filled with trapdoors and torture devices, horrible stuff. And so we did these sort of albino makeups and we made wigs for all these characters that had really long stringy hair and we made black contact lenses so that they uh, so that their eyes appeared black and some of the sculptures had these kind of weird scars and stuff so we wanted them to have this really unique sort of contrast to them because you were always going to see them in the dark i think one of the harder gags in the movie was when ving rames is killed and there's one scene where you see that his body is hoisted up over this well and they're gutting him. He's being gutted. So we had Ving Rhames come up to the shop and we had to life cast his face, life cast his upper body. He was not very happy about it. I remember having a call with Marianne Madalena afterwards and being like, mm, I don't know, this guy was really not digging this life cast at all which happens a lot, unfortunately. We sculpted this whole fake body with all the gravity to kind of simulate that he was hanging upside down and the ribs and all the guts and stuff. And then we hung the body upside down on the set. It was a really small set. And then we used a lot of real entrails, like pig entrails back then. That's what you use, you know? Cow entrails were too big and like to make them, you know, there was always something horrifying about like the plop of intestines when they hit the floor you know I, when we did day of the dead george romero would always talk about catch 22 like there's a scene where they're in the airplane and the guts spill out and we emulated that moment in day of the dead so you know tom was kind of the first guy to go you can't get anything more real than real so we'll get real guts and we'll 
cleaned them with bleach. And so we did a lot of that on, on people under the stairs. There was a lot of guts in that. Didn't take two. You'd have to jump down and kind of gross. Probably smelled great too. Huh? Uh, well, you know, the, the trick is you got to get a big giant bucket and you pour bleach in and bleach kills all the bacteria. So then you're okay for a little while until the bacteria starts to grow back, but not so much. Now that movie is very different. I think right at the time and that they also had like African-American protagonists, you know, the kid and Ving Rhames, their characters was more, you know, pretty straight up about class conflicts and all of that. So mm-hmm. Is that all part of like your discussions with Wes of what he was, what he was trying to do. I mean, it's not even, it's not even subtext. I mean, no, it's there, but you know, listen, all of those filmmakers had that rebellious nature about them. You know, I think that's what made Wes and Toby Hooper and George Romero uh, when they were making night living dead. And when they were making Texas chainsaw massacre and, you know, they were pretty hardcore about their, about, their stories and the themes that they wanted to push through. And I know George always says, oh, you know, I just cast Dwayne Jones because he was the best guy. I never really thought much about it. But after that, I'm sure he thought a lot about it, you know, Dawn of the Dead and all of his subsequent movies after that. But I always felt like there was this unique, rebellious nature about horror film directors because they were over and over again being told, you can't show that. You can't do that. People don't want to see that. So they're like, oh, really? You don't think they want to see that? Well, watch this. And then they find some sort of context with which to tell the story that someone just told them nobody wants to see. They don't want to see. You don't want Yeah, No one wants to see that. No one wants to see this. No one. And then they find a way using genre material to tell the stories that they want to tell. And I think a lot of it was because they had something to say and that they were being told that, that they couldn't tell that story. I mean, that, that film did, uh, was pretty successful too, right? Yeah. So I think, and so it seems like maybe it, um, I think it was one of Wes's, Wes's biggest movies. I mean, we did about 15 movies with Wes because after people under the stairs, we did the effects for all of Wes's films until he passed away, including all the screen movies and Hills Have Eyes. And that's where we worked with Alex Aja and Cursed. And, you know, Wes was, Wes was really, really one of a kind. talk about creep show and first uh let's start with the film version so i could talk a lot about creep show how sure. far back do you want me to go uh i think maybe uh visiting the set of george romero's so ironically when i first met george romero it wasn't in pittsburgh we had taken a family vacation it was the first time that we had ever uh, gone to europe and walked into a italian restaurant and george romero was sitting there I knew who George Romero was because I had seen his picture magazines. And I was like, that's, that's the Night of the Living Dead guy. Ironically, the unique part of the story is my uncle was a local actor in Pittsburgh and was friends with George and had a bit part in the crazies. So when George had finished dinner and he was getting up to leave, my younger brother and I ran over to him we're like, hey, you're George Romero. And we're in Rome, Italy. And he looks over like these two kids come running up like, hey, hey. And we said, oh, our uncle's Sam Nicotero. And it was one of those kind of chance meetings. The next thing you know, he's like, oh, you know, anytime we're ever filming anything in Pittsburgh, if you ever want to come visit, great. Well, you know, the office is downtown on Fort Pitt Boulevard. And I took him up on it. So I would go and visit their offices. I would take the bus from my house because I couldn't drive. 
take the bus to my house and uh, from my house to downtown and I would go visit. And a couple of years later, they were shooting Night Riders. I don't remember. And they had moved to a studio in Monroeville and they're like, we're getting ready to do Creep Show. And if you want to come visit, you can't come to the downtown office because we're not there now. We're out in Monroeville and we, we rented this space that we're building all the sets. And that's where I went. And the first time I parked my car, I went up, there was a little gymnasium and it was like an old, I think it was like an old high school with like a gymnasium next to it. And the gymnasium was where they built all the sets and the high school was where the production offices were. I walked into the gymnasium first because I didn't know where I was going and walked through and there was a bunch of carpenters and hammers banging and music. And I remember walking along and I made a left turn and all of a sudden I was in the basement of the Carnegie Mellon Laboratory set. Now, I didn't know what that was at the time, but I was just mesmerized that one minute I could be standing in a gymnasium and the next minute I was transported to this new place. I was so blown away by it. Then I ran up, went to the production office, found George. We talked for a little bit and they were like, hey, you know, do you want a job? Like production assistant job. You can work on the movie. And I'm like, "Ah, I'm just getting ready to, you know, go to college and be a doctor. And it's really nice of you. I have a friend. I actually recommended a friend of mine for the job. And I didn't realize at the time that that was him just being like, come on, your family, you know, you want to do it. You should do it. But I visited a lot. I visited a lot. And I remember George was a huge movie buff, huge movie buff. And I, and one of the visits I went out and I had a list of like all the movies that we had collected on, on beta. George went through the list and went, oh, I love, you know, uh, Viva Zapata, Treasure Sierra Madre, like all those movies that he loved. I love these movies. And I remember I spent the entire weekend like making copies for him. And then Monday morning I drove out to Monroeville again and gave him a box. And he was like, there's like 20 hours. Like, did you even sleep? I was just like anything I could do. I was just so enamored with him and just him letting me sort of hang out and watch the process. And that's when I met Tom, you know, Tom's lab was in the corner of the gymnasium. And ultimately on those visits, I would pop in and that's how I met Tom. And we became friends. And again, you know, it, it always amazed me that they didn't care if you were around. Like now they'd never invite anybody. You know, it's all NDAs and, you know, cell phones. And like, you can't have anybody that's not affiliated with the movie there because insurance, if, you know, if somebody drops a, a board on your foot, then, you know, you're, you're going to sue us. But back then, nobody cared about that shit. Back then it was like, you would go and you would hang out and they would just sort of like, oh, this kid's kind of interested in what we do. So if I wasn't with George, I would hang out in the corner of Savini's lab and watch them build Fluffy because they were building Fluffy for the crate. And Tom would film everything. You know, Tom was a huge student of Dick Smith's and Dick documented everything. Dick Smith was so good about taking notes about formulas and like sharing his information. And Tom would film everything because he wanted a record of it. So when I would go out there on Saturdays, I would run the camera for him. And like, there's video on like the Creepshow DVD. You can hear me in the background talking to Tom. My voice was much higher pitched then, of course. And so I just, I just was sort of dumped into it, but I still didn't even get it. At that point, I still didn't put two and two together and go, oh, this is where I'm meant to be. I just kind of thought I'm having this great opportunity I've been invited into this world and it's been great and I'm enjoying every second of being here because I'm getting a peek behind the curtain, but I'm still going to go be a doctor and I'm still going to go do all that stuff that I was supposed to do. Cut to three years later and it's June, June, July of 1984 and I go down to meet George. The creep shows come out and done very well and I go to have lunch with George and he said, oh, we're, we have a green light for Day of the Dead. Do you want a job? 
meanwhile in my head, I'm like, okay, I already turned down a job on Creepshow. In those few years, I became more and more interested in makeup effects. Fangoria magazine came out. That was sort of it. Plus, between 1980, when they shot Creepshow, and 1984, that was the explosion of prosthetics and makeup effects. The Fog, The Howling, American World. I mean, all of them. Aliens. And Aliens was later. But all of those movies, in every single one of those movies, I would run to the theater and sit in the theater. Maniac, Mother's Day. I, I, I saw them all. I couldn't not. I could not go. I was just so enthralled with those movies. So I realized when I was having the opportunity to get a second chance, that's when I said, well, yeah, let me just talk to my folks for a minute. And I went home and told my parents I was going to take a semester off school. And here I am. So I owe it all to George and his kindness and how accepting he was to just have me around to sort of watch and sort of bask in this thing that I had no idea that that was what I wanted to do. I just, I was just there by osmosis. And then Savini let me hang out in the corner of his lab while they were building things. So it's the craziest, craziest story. And then, of course, the irony of all this, when I produced the Shutter version of Creepshow, my younger brother found a video that I had shot in 1985. And I was filming my office at my house and I had like a Dawn of the Dead, I had posters and like a script or whatever sitting there. And I was filming the Creepshow poster, the original poster. And I said in the video, mom, dad, one day you might see my name on that poster. It's going to say produced by Gregory Nicotero. And my brother sent me the video last year and I, and it blew me away. The fact that just by sheer will, I was somehow able to make this world uh, coalesce into something that I loved so much into an actual career. Hanging out at the Creepshow set, are any particular things you saw that really left a mark on you? I would say clearly the, the time that I spent in Tom's lab really was what left its mark on me. Because at that point, he was building his first animatronic creature. Tom had never built anything like that before. So you would go into his lab and there was the underskull with all the teeth and then the dental acrylic and then the foam latex and he was punching the hair. Like all that stuff was what was really ultimately the most interesting to me. Because even times when George would say, hey, you're going to come out the set and I would go and I would hang out with Tom for a couple hours and I'd go to set and he's like, where have you? Where were you? And I was like, oh, I was. And he's like, yeah, 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 I get it. Everybody loves Tom Savini. You're going to go hang out with him. I, you know, he was kind of funny about it. But really, that's where I spent most of, most of my time. Uh, you know, I was, on, I, I was on set a bit when they were shooting the crate at that studio. But really, it was kind of the, the whole thing with just watching the effects being made. That's my most vivid memory about it. You know, I loved the movie and I thought what was interesting, I remember seeing them shooting the actors with the colored lights and the background. And even the, uh, even the scene where Fluffy kills the grad student and they had the red light on and they were pumping the blood, but the red light and the blood and it looked like water. And, and I remember like, even at that time, I didn't quite understand the aesthetic. I remember just seeing like, oh, all of a sudden, like there's a bunch of guys on dimmers and they'd go, Meow, and they would turn it and the lights would change. And I remember thinking how, how interesting it was. And I mean, I had known because I had read the script. They gave me the script to read. 
that they were doing like a comic book come to life, but to see like the backgrounds with, you know, like the sort of comic book things, you know, I always felt that Creepshow was, was way ahead of its time in terms of George and Steve King's sort of love letter to EC Comics. We're like, we love this so much that not only do we want to do, we don't want it to be Tales from the Crypt or Asylum, or we don't want it to be anything like that. We want to do our own thing. How do we set this movie aside from any other sort of anthology? And it was the, it was the comic book itself. And, you know, Rick Catazone, who did the animation, I went and worked at his studio a couple years later before Day of the Dead. And he had all the animation cells and it was like the, the, you know, the comic book pages turning. And, and I remember taking my camera and he let me take pictures of all the animation cells and all the page layouts and all that stuff. I just was, you know, I just couldn't get enough of it. I was so intrigued by the idea that, that they were using comic book pages. They were trying to immerse you into the, the, the comic book world. Even back then, you know, comic books were probably not as popular as they had been in the 50s, because in the 50s, EC Comics, everything was sort of banned and forbidden. And, you know, by the 70s, I think, you know, we had famous monsters and that, but that was such a select few. A small group reading the war, reading creepy and eerie. And creepy. All that. Yeah. yeah, but those, I, I always felt like there was... Doing Creepshow really was their opportunity to pay tribute to the stuff that inspired them. And ultimately, that's what we all do. You know, on every show that I do, I'll always put something in there that relates to something that I loved or that I was inspired by. Or just because it gives you, it gives you this sort of sense of like paying it forward, you know. Horror fans, generally speaking, tend to like a bunch of stuff, including, for instance, like the Aurora kits and all of that. So it's a whole lifestyle, essentially. Well, here's, here's the interesting thing about horror fans. They can never get enough. It's not just enough that you can watch Frankenstein. You need the Castle Films Super 8 Digest of Frankenstein. And then once you get that, then you need the famous Monsters magazine that has the San Julian painting on the cover. And then it's not good enough. You open the magazine and in the back, there are ads for Frankenstein soap containers and Aurora monster models and toys. And it was such a unique moment when they syndicated the, the Universal Monster movies, that shock theater packet in the, in the 50s. Because what that meant was that the parents that were a little older now could watch those movies on TV, and then the kids would watch it with their parents. My parents were a huge influence on me because I was always afraid of, of, of monsters when I was really little, and I loved it. But like I remember seeing Time Machine, War of the Worlds, Horror of Dracula, and I saw them because my parents saw them. My parents loved them. My parents went on a date and saw them at the movie theater when my mom was 17 years old. So the idea that somehow or another, somebody thought to make toys, monsters, because I can't imagine that that made sense to anybody except for probably like one or two people. 
But with Famous Monsters, you had the ability to sell that merchandise. And for all of us, you know, you'd walk through a hobby shop and you'd see the glow in the dark square box of the Wolfman with the, you know, you know, frightening lightning or whatever, whatever year you happen to be in that hobby shop because you couldn't get enough. You needed, you needed more. And I feel like that's what all of us horror fans all have in common. Every horror fan that you'll talk to in that generation, you had to work for it. You had to find it. You had to seek it out. You know, you had to go to the theater and see Ray Harryhausen movies, or you would go see Theater of Blood, Vincent Price, and you'd stand in the lobby and stare at the poster with the different, how each person was killed. You couldn't get enough. And it was that sort of junky rush of being scared and not wanting to look, but needing to look because you had to know because you just couldn't sleep if you didn't know what it was, if you didn't see it. And that spawned this entire generation of monster lovers. It was all based on the, the love of those monsters and people not being able to get enough. And that's what, listen, that's what got me into it. I'm still, I'm still seeking out things that I had when I was a kid, because I want to recapture that moment of like, oh my God, I remember buying this standing in like Berlin's hobby shop on the McKnight Road in Pittsburgh and walking in and seeing all the monster models. Literally, it was 1972. So I was nine years old and they were stacks and stacks of them. And, you know, you, you couldn't just get one and you had to have all of them. And then you had to build them. And then, you know, the glue would take all fucking night to dry because you'd it was the tester's glue, and you'd have to scotch tape everything together. But every Saturday night, my parents would go to dinner, and we would stay up late and watch Chiller Theater in Pittsburgh, hosted by Bill Cardell, who was uh, one of the actors in Night Living Dead. And they would come home, and they would leave a model, a monster model kit for me for to build. And of course, you know, the irony was all the paints that that all the enamel paints it would take forever to dry. And the joke that we always talk about is the fact that like with the creature in Black Lagoon, everybody would just slather blood on his, on his nails. But you just couldn't get enough. And I feel like that aspect of it is the common thread between all of us. All of us that love horror is just that desire that when you see it, you need more. You see Frankenstein, you need more. You see the creature in Black Lagoon and you need more. And that moment in time where these people realized that there was a market for that. And that's really what made all of us who we are today. See those little Mego figures they've, they're, they're selling at Target. They had the Frankenstein, the green, and then they had a black and white Frankenstein mm -hmm. glow in the dark. Yeah. Takes me right back. Even the box art, like, you know, the interesting thing about the Aurora monster models is like James Bama, who's, world famous western artist they would paint these they would, he would paint these beautiful monster portraits and you would buy the model because of the painting on the box and then you'd get it together and you'd build it and you're like that doesn't look anything like the painting i was like well because you're not james bama but there was it was such a unique and exciting time because you were inspired by everything that you saw all around you. Monsters were there and, mon and, and it was, well, now it's okay to love monsters. I think back when I was younger, people would be like, something wrong with you. Cause why do you like that gory stuff? I just did, you know, it, it sparked my imagination and that's what I loved about it. But uh, you know, when you look at these beautiful paintings on these, 
Aurora model boxes. And you're like, man, I like, I would have made posters of all of those if I could. And then you go to the famous monsters magazine, Basil Gogos and all the paintings on the famous monsters covers that those guys did for 150 bucks, hundred bucks. Probably those paintings are worth 20, $30,000 now because there's such a market for people who love, just want to sort of pay tribute to that kind of art form. Draw you back to creep show. How did the new series come to be? Well, it's an interesting story. I was doing press in Australia for The Walking Dead, and I had a 19-hour flight home. And I was thinking, ah, I want to read something on the plane. And I was looking through my iPad and looking in iBooks, and I found this book called Knights of the Living Dead. I went, that's weird. What is that? And I read the I read the synopsis, and it was like a bunch of stories about events that happened the same night that Night of the Living Dead would have happened in the 1969 George Romero universe. And I went, oh my God, that's right up my alley. Boop, and I bought it. And I read one of the stories and I loved it. It was so fun and just, I wanted to shoot it as a short film. I didn't know what the hell I was going to do with it, but I really liked the story. So we reached out to the writer and lo and behold, we get a message back going, oh, well, he works at Shutter. I'm like, for AMC. I went, wait, my AMC, AMC? Like we worked for the same company. And lo and behold, I had another project in development with AMC, and they were at the time trying to get the rights to Creepshow. And I went, wait, my Creepshow? Like, you know, I have ownership to these things because I was there, and I just thought that it was my Creepshow. So I went to the folks at AMC and said, hey, man, you know, this is something I'm passionate about. This is something I love. I would love to be able to be the creative executive on it. I'd love to be able to to oversee the show and develop the material and direct and write and produce and create the effects and do everything that I could to sort of pay homage to everything that, that inspired me, just like Steve and George did. And the next thing you know, we were making the show. It still, to me, was a crazy dream come true. It was hard as hell to do it. But the idea that we were developing scripts, I called a lot of writers that I was friends with. I called a lot of directors that I was friends with. Every single actor that's name is in my phone. I texted them at one point or another and said, hey, you want to come be in Creepshow? I, I just wanted people to have fun and to enjoy it and, and love it. And I entered into it with the same spirit that I believe George and Steve did when they did the original Creep Show, which is, you know, sort of their love letter to EC Comics and their thank you to those writers for taking them on these twisted, macabre, creepy, revenge-filled, blood-soaked, sexy adventures. So I was really excited about having the opportunity to, to do that. And again, because I had felt that Creepshow was way ahead of its time in terms of the visual style and knowing that they really didn't get it right in any of the other subsequent Creepshow movies, that there was a great market, an untouched market for people who loved the original Creepshow. They're all people around my age. I think my big stumbling block or hurdle was to sort of reintroduce Shudder to a younger audience because there were a lot of people whose parents said, oh my God, I love Creepshow, but their kids didn't know anything about it. So, you know, my association with The Walking Dead definitely helped elevate that because when they went, oh, the guy that does Walking Dead is doing Creepshow. Oh, that's kind of cool. And I would wear my Creepshow t-shirt all around and everybody would be, oh, I love Creepshow. I'm like, I think we're onto something here. 
was it difficult to recreate the style? I think the the biggest challenge on Creepshow was we had three and a half days to shoot each segment. And that was a little bananas. Like my original plan was 18 stories and we would do those stories over six episodes. I was really using the night gallery model. Like I loved in night gallery that like you would have an episode that was six minutes and maybe there was one that was 14 minutes and there was one that was 20 minutes. It didn't matter. And I think that's what's so fun about Creepshow is you don't have to adhere to the same rules that like three, four act, you know, hour long television has to adhere to. You don't have to worry about that. You don't have to worry about commercials. You can just let the story take as long as it takes because short form storytelling, all the rules are kind of out the window. That's what I loved about it. So when we started developing stories, I was using that, that night gallery model of like, oh man, wouldn't it be great if maybe we did three stories per episode? And I think the network said, no, we just want one, just one hour. And I'm like, but then it's not an anthology. It's not the same. Then I can't do the comic book transitions and the page turns. So I reluctantly agreed to do two stories per episode. And we only had seven days to shoot an episode. So we had to shoot three and a half days per episode. So I wish that we had had a little bit more time because I wanted to embrace more of those color, the color palettes and the changes. You know, we had a couple episodes that we really were able to sort of lean into that. And then other episodes where the stories were so dense and there was so much to tell that we really literally didn't have time to turn a camera over there and shoot the creep puppet in front of a blue screen or whatever, because we literally didn't have the five minutes it would have taken to do that. So the way that I dealt with that was I designed all the comic book panels so that you could go into a story and pan through comic book panels and then come out of a story. A lot of that came from one of the first episodes that we had produced. It was called Night of the Paw. And I loved the story. It was this sort of film noir, monkey's paw retelling. But the big challenge was there was a lot of locations and I didn't think that we would be able to shoot like the hearse driving to the cemetery. So I went, hey, wait a minute. I have an idea. What if we dissolve from live action into a comic book panel and then we go through the comic book panels and we get us from point A to point B? And... It worked great and people loved it and had a really good time with that work. So we were able to do a lot of that. You know, I think in the episodes that I directed, especially Grey Matter, which was based on the Stephen King story, I did a lot of Dutch angles and I did a lot of, as the story progressed, I sort of tilted the camera a little bit more just to make it sort of feel like things were a little off kilter and a little strange. And that was, you know, that was a lot of fun for me to, be able to reach out to Steve and say, hey, man, I'm doing Creepshow and, you know, I would love to have you represented. And he's, he, he, without a doubt, like within, you know, within hours got back to me and was like, great, let's do it. You know, I felt like it couldn't be Creepshow without him. And I actually employed several other people that had worked on the original Creepshow to be part of it because I wanted the continuity. You know, having Rick own do the animation and having John Harrison uh, direct on it. Um, who did the original music and is great writer director and Tom Savini, of course, you know, so I felt like it was a great opportunity for me and I wanted to be able to tell the best story. So there were instances when I wanted to lean into the color palettes and the comic book panels and the backgrounds a little bit more. I wish I could have, 
um, but the time frame didn't allow. But, you know, going into season two, now I know, like, put those transitions, you know, like all the scripts that we're working on now and the script that I just finished writing, I scripted all the transitions and the color change and, and I put it all in the script. So when we're moving 100 miles an hour to try to finish our day and do 78 setups in a day, which is what I uh, was averaging just to tell the story and get the work done. It'll be in the back of my head, like, oh, you got to do this. You got to do that. You got to maintain this. Gray matter does not look like you did it in three and a half days. That's for sure. That's a very dense and complicated. Yeah. <laughs> it was very, it was, it, well, listen, you know, that was our kind of, that was our, our showstopper. So, you know, when, when Creepshow was announced, I connected with Adrian Barbeau and she said, anything that you can use me for, I would love to do it. I would love to do it. And, you know, Tobin Bell and I have been friends for a long time. And Giancarlo Esposito, who I worked on Breaking Bad with, those guys basically said yes without even hesitating. And the irony with Adrian was we shot all of her stuff in one day. Like she had like, we, we shot 12 pages of dialogue that day. There was so much to do. And she looked at me at one point like, do you guys do this all the time? And I was like, well, yeah, but you're Adrian Barbeau. Like I'm, I'm not going to roll a camera for a split second without having you in it. You know, you're, you're, you're who you are. I was really, really delighted that, that I was able to get that cast. And the other episode I directed was called The Finger. It was written by David Scow that starred DJ Qualls. And that was super complicated. He was the only guy in the episode, but he talks to the camera. And I think we hired him three days before we shot. And he sat down in my office and he said, please tell me that all this off-camera dialogue I don't have to memorize. Because if I have to say all the off-camera dialogue and learn this entire 24-page script in two days, I'm never going to be able to do it. I said, no, 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 don't worry about it. Just learn what's scripted, and then we'll record everything else later. But he came into it with, with so much heart and so much passion. And at one point, you know, we had the Bob puppet, and we had the rods coming out of it, and there was a boom arm, and we had all the puppeteers, and this thing's moving. And he's just sitting there watching it, shaking his head. And I'm like, what's up? He's like, I love this stuff. I love this stuff. He said, you bring such, he said, your passion and your energy and your excitement is infectious. He said, I've, I love being in this kind of creative environment where you're relying on your experience, you know, like puppeteering and creature effects and all these years of working side by side with Sam Raimi and Wes Craven and Alex Aja and Robert and Frank Darabont, like everything sort of culminated in, in that seven days of me directing those two episodes. And I had a blast doing it. It was so much fun. And, you know, when DJ was done, he, he was so grateful for the experience. Of course, it wasn't fun while I was doing it. While I was doing it, I wanted to put a gun in my mouth. But ultimately, in the rearview mirror, it's much more, it's much more palatable. I'm just going to jump straight sure. to John Carpenter's The Thing. Opening night, I went to see The Thing in the movie theater with my girlfriend at the time. And she almost vomited in the movie theater. She was so upset and so distressed about how gory that movie was. I had no idea what she was talking about. 
to me, at that point, I was the biggest John Carpenter fan. You know, having seen Halloween, having seen The Fog and Escape from New York, it was, if there was a John Carpenter movie coming out, I was there and I was in the theater. And I just absolutely couldn't wait. The ad campaign was very mysterious. It was like, you know, the title comes out of black and you hear the radio, the, the radio staticky announcement. And it was just so foreboding and so, and so nerve wracking. And, you know, I felt like between 1980 and 1983 was probably the greatest time for genre movies uh, in our history because every couple of weeks it was another genre movie coming out. And I believe that the summer that The Thing came out, I think it was also Creepshow came out. I want to say Road Warrior, Blade Runner. I mean, there was like almost like Star Trek II, Poltergeist, E.T. I mean, they were all they were within a year of each other, but like it was like every two or three weeks. So with The Thing, I was absolutely with every neuron in my body sitting there waiting to see this movie. And the creature effects were so mind-blowing and so outrageous because there were no rules to the monster. Like, the monster didn't have any rules. So the first time that the dog goes into the kennel and splits open and just starts turning into the... I, I couldn't... I didn't even know where to look or what thing. And I just loved... I probably saw the movie 15 times in the theater when it first came out. You know, I thought the cast was magnificent. I thought just the entire sense of dread and foreboding. I thought Kurt Russell was was amazing in it. There's there's literally nothing wrong with that movie. I would say I would say The Thing and Aliens might be close to the two perfect movies that I've ever seen. And I just I saw it over and over again. And again, back then there was nothing available about how they did the special effects. It was like maybe one article about Rob Bottin and Fangoria, and then there was like a PM Evening Magazine spot. They didn't really know how to feature the makeup effects because like American World in London had come out the year before, and they didn't really embrace it. And I think even with John, you know, like there was, there's such a unique fine line the way that you film creature effects. And so much of it is about light and so much of, about it is camera angle and, and how it's puppeteered and whether it's shiny. If you put KY on anything, it looks more gross than if it was a dry, wet suit uh, or a dry, wet, whatever it was. So the fact that everything, it was just so visceral and the idea that you were being sort of dissolved and rebuilt from the inside and the quick glimpses that you got of it. And then by the end, you're, you know, it's just, you know, when Palmer starts to transform and there's just blood like faucet pouring out of him. I just loved every second of it. Every amount of ingenuity that they used, you know, Mike Plug's drawings for Rob Bottin and all the work that they did, all the storyboards. And, you know, it was, it, it's a triumph in every aspect of filmmaking. And the intriguing thing about it was it was so universally panned at that particular point in film history because E.T. had come out and everybody went, oh, we love E.T. Look, it's this friendly alien. And then the thing comes out and people looked at it like, why would you make this movie about this horrible, shape-shifting, gory monster when we have E.T. who's friendly and we love him? And 
you know, the irony of all of it was, is that John Carpenter went on to do Starman just to say to the world, hey, you know what? Fuck you. I can make whatever kind of movie I want. I wanted to make that film. The Thing was the movie that I wanted to make. And I, I went back and looked at some old articles and there's a review that I think Fred Clark wrote for Santa Fantastic magazine. Well, it's a big genre magazine in the day. And he said, people don't get this movie now, but you wait 20, 30 years, people are gonna, people are gonna get it and they're gonna celebrate it for the classic that it is. And I was so enamored uh, with that review and so grateful that there were people that saw the movie for its merits because it's a brilliant movie. A lot of stuff we liked when we were kids is now on a mountaintop in the pantheon. <laughs> yeah, Evil Dead 2. Evil Dead 2. People people go crazy for Evil Dead 2. Like, oh my God, you worked on that movie? I love that movie. There's something about horror films that have that aspect of being a bit outrageous that takes them to a different place. You know, I mean, they can be scary. Evil Dead 2 wasn't necessarily very scary. Because I think once Sam had done Evil Dead 1 and he had a little bit more money, Evil Dead 2 was really ultimately just a remake of Evil Dead 1 with some more money, with some better makeup effects, with some better actors. And the funny thing about it was I didn't even realize until we were two or three weeks into shooting on location that part of Sam Raimi's makeup, part of his DNA is the Three Stooges. I didn't know that because I remember reading there was a scene that New Pages came out and it's a scene where... Ash is in the woodshed and he finds Linda's head in the vice and she's talking to him and one minute she's possessed and the next minute she's not. And then she vomits on him and all this crazy stuff that's going on. And then the new pages came out and the door to the woodshed swings open and the headless corpse of Linda comes rushing in with a chainsaw over its head. And I remember reading that going, oh, it's the most horrifying. I, I, it was the most horrifying image that a headless corpse chasing you with a chainsaw. So we had the puppet pieces there. So when it came time to put it together, we had a lightweight chainsaw. We hooked a piece of monofilament up to it. And we had a little creeper dolly that we were like sliding back and forth as we, and when we started shooting and the door flies open and the puppet comes in and it was sort of puppeteered. I think Howard Berger puppeteered it and it looked kind of silly. It didn't look like I had imagined that it would look. It was still cool, but I went, huh, well, that's interesting. And then as the shoot continued, and I, I remember just seeing like us literally having a radio-controlled hand that we would put on wires and we would move it around the set. And the eyeball flyball where the head gets stuck in the, the peewee head gets stuck in the trap door and they jump on it in the eyeball. I made the eyeballs. We made them out of gelatin and I made latex little veins and stuck them on and put them in the freezer to keep them from melting because they were shooting in, in North Carolina in the summer. And then when it came time to shoot, and shoo, the, we would put it on a big pole that went four feet out and then up and back so that we could pan with the eyeball. And the fact that the eyeball shot into Cassie's mouth and then we used monofilament to pull it out in reverse, I kind of started realizing, okay, this isn't probably the most terrifying, frightening experience and horror that the original Evil Dead was, but that it evolved into a different movie. And by the way, a movie that was way more fun. You know, when we did the blood flood and all the blood starts shooting out and there was fire hoses filled with black blood and green blood and yellow blood. And, you know, we couldn't use red because we knew that if the blood was red, the ratings board would get us. So Sam's trick was, he's like, ha, I'm going to get him. I'm not going to use red. 
I'm going to use different colors. And then they can't say that it's too gory. Well, of course, there's still fluid pumping out of Bruce Campbell's stump at a velocity of a fire hose. So the ratings board, I don't think they were fooled. But ultimately, the movie was so much fun to make. You know, Sam's ingenuity and his... In, uh, just he he never stopped loving what he was doing even to this day i love working with sam because he's got this great outrageous spirit so when we did drag me to hell we sort of rekindled a little bit of that kind of outrageous nature but you look at sam's movies and it's all homages to the things that he loved it's three stooges and it's ray harryhausen army of darkness is all ray harryhausen So it was so much fun to do, but I would have never imagined when we started with Possessed People and Swallow Your Soul and the Necronomicon that that would have been the movie that we would have ended up making. Let's talk about Roger Corman, particularly like Attack of the Crab Monsters that conquered the world. There were a lot of times when I had wished that I would have been able to make giant paper mache monsters for Roger Corman and worked with Paul Blaisdell and Bob Burns on It Conquered the World. There was just something about those. I don't even know how long they actually had to make those creatures or even make the movies. There's probably five or six days, I would imagine, to shoot those. But back then, you know, everything was, was either an alien or it was like some mutated monster. I remember watching It Conquered the World, I think mainly because I was shooting a movie in Bronson Canyon and somebody, I knew it was the Batcave, but somebody said, oh, they shot It Conquered the World here. And I watched It Conquered the World. And the idea that they had the little flying bats that would like control you. And then Beulah, that was the nickname for the monster. It was called Beulah, came out of the cave, the big care monster with the big crab claws. I love those movies. They were just so much fun. The monsters were so weird. After that steady diet of Frankenstein and the Wolfman and Dracula, and all that were sort of more humanoid type monsters. Now, all of a sudden you're getting something that's a lot more outrageous and more crazy. It's like, you know, I mean, other than the Harryhausen stuff, which was all stop motions, but they were like literally building giant crabs and building all this crazy stuff, you know, she creature and, you know, all, all that, it, uh, the terror from beyond space, all those creatures that just were very different than what we had come to, to know and expect for creature effects, because everything kind of changed in the fifties, you know, after like Abbott Costello meet Frankenstein and they kind of, all right, the universal monsters are done. And then you had hammer the hammer stuff that was also just the bloodier, sexier version of the Universal Monsters. So to be able to sort of start revisiting different kinds of creatures and different kinds of monsters, that was for me what it was all about. You know, I loved Godzilla, was super into all that stuff. And, you know, the thing with Corman was, is that he would go in and shoot stuff so fast. And by being able to do that, there was more material. There was more stuff out there for us to see. So again, wanting the, wanting that experience of like, I've seen this one. Now I got to see another one. Now I got to see another one, you know, double features and drive-in movies and all that kind of stuff. With horror, there's this really unique communal aspect of it. Like 
people love to get together and be scared together. It's like riding a roller coaster, you know. I don't know any other genre where people like to get together to watch westerns or to watch dramas or to watch musicals. But with horror, I remember going to the theater on a Saturday morning and they would have like a double bill. And in between the movies, they would have people dressed up like Frankenstein and the Wolfman and Dracula. And they would walk down the aisles and go up on the stage in front of the movie theater. And you would, your parents would drop you off and sit you there and then you'd watch all the movies and then they'd come pick you up five hours later and they, were, they had a nice quiet house, so they were happy. But there was always something really fascinating about the communal aspect of horror movies, that people like to experience it with someone else, whether it's because they're afraid or they just want to be like, oh my God, did you see that? That was so great. You know, I would always go with my best friend from high school to go see every movie that came out because you want to share it with somebody. It's that much fun. What are your thoughts on Carrie? Carrie. Carrie was one of the few movies that I didn't see in the theater. When I first time I saw it, it was on a channel called Hollywood Home Theater, which was back east. That was like the version of HBO. And I had never seen it before. And I remember watching it at my uncle's house. And I didn't really know. I didn't know. Like, it was so strange. But I was always so fascinated with telekinetic powers. Like, the fact that somebody could move things with their mind. And that she was just this sort of weirdly random, sort of outcast, misunderstood. And then you'd go home and Piper Laurie was there. And Piper Laurie would be like, you're special and you're, it'll be okay. I think the scene that, that I loved, absolutely loved the most was when she finally comes home after the gymnasium and she gets out of the bathtub and she goes over and Piper Laurie is hugging her and raises the knife up. I mean, you know, the, the, there's De Palma always was so precise in how he built suspense and the camera angles. Something's really close, close up in the foreground, the diopter shot where you have like something close in the foreground and it's also focused, it's in focus and in focus. You know, I, I always love that he drew your eye where to look all the time. You know, clearly there's so much said about De Palma sort of emulating Hitchcock in that world. But that moment where Piper Laurie raises the knife and stabs Carrie and then she struggles back and then they did that whole sequence where the knives where she recreates the statue I I, first of all you know when I first saw it I didn't know how they did it I couldn't figure out like oh my god how did these knives like twirl through the through the air but it was such a it was such a unique sequence and the way that the effects worked and her performance, and then when you realize that subconsciously she recreated the same pose as the Jesus that was in her closet. And I thought the movie was over, so I was really 100% completely satisfied. And then, of course, the arm comes out of the ground at the end, and, and that kind of fucked me up for a while. But I loved the movie. I thought it was, it was fantastic. But that one particular scene was always my favorite. hereditary you know this day and age it's really a challenge for me to find time to to see a lot of movies because i unfortunately i i work quite often so the beauty of having children is they want to go see scary movies with you because i think they know they're like oh if we're with dad we're safe because dad knows it's all fake so my son and i watched hereditary and i'm a huge fan of like 70s style storytelling I don't need to race to the story in the first five seconds. I love twists and turns. 
I love unexpected things happening. I love little clues that are left for you. I know that in this day and age, most people are very impatient in terms of the way stories are being told. You know, they watch TV and they're like, oh, nothing happened in that episode. That was silly. But with Hereditary, first of all, I love that it took its time, that you didn't know where the story was going and that there were just some horribly emotionally draining moments. Tony Collette is so good in that movie, and you just, all you want to do is find a way for her to release her of her pain. And by the time you get to the end of it, it's, it's not a guy in a mask. It's not a guy with a chainsaw. It's not somebody hiding behind the door. It literally is the supernatural reincarnation of a demon. And I always found those stories more interesting to me than a killer on the loose. Because a killer on the loose, oh, if it's a guy, it could be a guy next door that could be the killer. I like supernatural. I like monsters. I, I, wanna, I wanna be told a story that involves something that is fantastic, that is imaginative. And I'm not saying that, that Michael Myers or, or Jason or any of those movies aren't imaginative, but I always felt like, you know, the unstoppable monster, the guy walking around with a knife, I, I, I always wanted monsters. I'm a monster kind of guy. So with Hereditary, by the time you get to the end of the movie and Tony Collette's like levitating and with the garret and it's sawing her own head off with that horrifying look on her face, I, 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 I didn't know what to do. Like, I didn't even know where the movie was going. I, it, you know, I, and I love that about it. I love The Witch for the same reason. I love these movies that you don't know where you're going to land. Midsummer was the exact same way. It opens with such an emotional, just, it just devastates you. You know, the fact that this, that, that her sister couldn't just kill herself, but had to take her parents with her. It's, you know, you start with these characters that are broken and you spend the majority of the movie wanting to see them fixed. And you realize that there's no redemption for them. They're never going to be saved. They're never going to, nothing's ever going to step in and make it okay. Because Ari Aster's movies don't work that way. By the end of Hereditary, I was so satisfied with the morbid fact that nobody survived. You know, to me, it was like watching Burnt Offerings, watching a 70s movie where it's okay if the movies can be dark. It's, there's, there's no redeeming quality about them. There's no happy ending. And I know a lot of people have a hard time with movies that have those kinds of endings because they feel like, oh, you took me on this emotional roller coaster and you've drained me of, of everything. So I need some redemption. But a lot of those kinds of movies, you don't get redemption out of those movies. That's not why you see those kinds of movies to begin with. I really respect what, what Ari's done with his movies because it's bold storytelling where he, he's okay with dark, twisted, very twisted um, scenarios where the characters don't ever get redemption. The horror genre may be the only place these days where you're allowed to have an ending that isn't a happy ending. Invasion of the Body Snatchers. I always find it interesting when you find a movie that immerses you in a world that you instantly feel uncomfortable, that you feel like you don't belong, you're an outsider. And Invasion of the Body Snatchers it does a masterful job of that, from the lighting, the paranoia, just the fact that everything unravels and it opens 
in outer space. It opens on another planet. And you're literally following these little jelly blobs as they get caught up in cosmic wind and land on the plants in San Francisco. And then there's those super cool like shots of the pot. Like you actually see the entire backstory of how the aliens come to Earth in the opening credits. And what's interesting is they're not cognizant. They're not like monsters or they're just like this. It's just strange and super random. But the next thing you know, you're getting all these little pieces of information about how they're taking over. You know, the dump trucks would show up and they would dump the little black ash. It looked like hemp in the back of these trucks. But as the movie progresses, the camera angles and the camera work becomes much more frenetic. The lights, like the lighting is low and cast these really eerie, creepy shadows on everybody. And you're sort of going through with Brooke Adams and, uh, and Donald Sutherland as they're sort of moving through and they still can't figure it, it out. Like halfway through the movie, they're, you know, they're calling Leonard Nimoy and they're like, David, you got to help us figure this out. And they just can't understand that that this could happen so quickly. And once they finally do realize what it is, then they have to walk amongst them. And I think for me, I had always loved the original Invasion of the Body Snatchers, but this movie, there was something so much more visceral about it. I think the fact that you actually see them transforming, you know, when the pods start to open up and that, that amazing sequence in the garden where all of the people are sort of growing, you know, again, that was definitely a product of its times, but even I think a little early for the big makeup effects sort of renaissance in the early eighties, cause it came out in the late seventies. But I always loved that movie just because of how unsettled it makes you feel and the ending of course i'm such a fan of that movie that i bought the script online because i wanted to see how much of the actual visuals in the movie were incorporated into the script and you get to the last page and in the script they're like and then we'll just let you know what happens like they didn't put the ending in the script I was a little disappointed because I want the script page that says that Donald Sutherland turns and points to Veronica Cartwright and makes that classic, you know, that classic face. And then I sort of remembered that even back then, you know, it was so important. And this was before the Internet existed. So spoilers were spoilers. But there were times when they wouldn't hand out the pages because they didn't want it to get out there. Even the audience or the other actors to know what the ending of the movie was going to be. But it's absolutely within my top 20 favorite movies. I'm just asking about one more here. It's actually The Cabin in the Woods. Cabin in the Woods. Cabin in the Woods might be the most fun that I've had watching a movie in the last 10 years. Because, again, it was one of those absolutely outrageous premises that sort of had me thinking, like, wait a minute, why didn't I think of that? How interesting is it that... There's a group of people who program different scenarios. So I love the movie. I love the sort of creature features aspect of it. I think the visual effects and the creature effects, everything is top notch in the movie. And the fact that it ends with entire, the entire uh, humanity being destroyed. Again, I, I, I love that it's outrageous. You know, a lot of people watch that movie and we're like, oh, I didn't like the ending. Like, it didn't, I, you know, didn't make any sense. And it's like, well, how else would you end a movie like that? You know, 
you're setting up that that all over the world there are these scientists uh, that are responsible for making sacrifices in order to keep these unseen gods at check. I mean, right there, the premise is so brilliant. But I, I really, I just loved everything about that movie. I loved, especially I think when they're when they get in the elevator and they're going down the elevator and you see the little cubicles with all the different monsters. That's great. And yeah, it's a total, the ending is pure Lovecraft. Oh, yeah. I don't know why I responded so much to that movie. I think it's just, for me, like the only criteria is I want to be entertained. Like, I want to go on an adventure. I just want to have fun. And that movie was so much fun. And again, having no idea where it started versus where it's going, I tend to gravitate towards those kinds of movies because I realize how challenging and difficult it is to really take your audience on a ride and then make a right turn and another right turn and another right turn and keep them with you. That's hard. That's really hard to do because a lot of times people, oh, I'm out or they don't buy this moment or they don't buy this moment. For me, when, when a movie like Hereditary or Midsummer or Cabin in the Woods, any of those kinds of movies that take you on that journey, and by the time you end, you're in a completely different place, and you never saw it coming, and you had a great time getting there, that's a win-win for me. And that's our interview with cosmic-level multitasker Greg Nicotero. Join us next time when our guests will be... Eli Roth. And be sure to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen so you never miss an episode. History of Horror Uncut is a Shudder original podcast hosted by Eli Roth and Kurt Sayanga, produced by Kurt Sayanga, engineered by Chris Heckman, with music by Maestro Joseph Bashara. For Oddity, Jessica Bastilos Heckman, and Lacey Oglevoy. For Shudder, Craig Engler, Nicholas Lazo, and Samuel Zimmerman. The interviews in this program were originally conducted for the AMC television series Eli Roth's History of Horror. Executive producers Eli Roth, Kurt Sayanga, Stephen Michaels, Allison Berkeley, Joseph Freed, Jody Flynn, and James McNabb. Senior producer Ben Raphael Schur. Thanks to Kelly Nash, Richard Drew, Chris Powers, and most valuable player Clara Zwerbel at AMC. This is Kurt Zanga for Eli Roth's History of Horror and Cut.